If you have sought refuge under his wings, he is doing the same thing in your life. Who knows what seemingly unimportant events tomorrow will in fact be an amazing act of God's complex and overwhelming providence. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is your level of responsibility in relation to God's sovereign will? Do you seek to maximize the impact of every moment with those you come into contact in your workday? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom brings us part 12 of his current series from the Old Testament book titled Ruth. One of the themes that comes out of Ruth is a reminder of how your work is the primary means that God cares for you and that He's the one who blesses your work. You know, sometimes God leads you through lean times with respect to finances, physical health, and so many more examples. And when He does, He meets your needs not only through your work, He often meets them through the compassion and generosity of righteous people, people as exemplified by the man Boaz, as you'll hear in today's study. Let's join our teacher now for more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. What's remarkable about verse 20 is there are two profound Hebrew words here. We've already met the first one, chesed, but there's a second magnificent Hebrew word buried in this one short verse. It's here translated closest relative. The Hebrew word is goel. Goel. It's sometimes translated kinsman redeemer. We'll consider this word and its concept more in depth as we get to chapter 4. But let me just introduce you to it briefly. Goel, our kinsman redeemer. It's a technical term taken from Hebrew family law. It's built on the idea that close relatives have a responsibility for members of their family. Under the Mosaic law, the goel, the the kinsman redeemer, had a general responsibility to protect the well-being of his relatives as well as specific duties when a relative was in distress and unable to extricate himself from the crisis. Daniel Block notes Five duties of the kinsman redeemer or the close relative. I'll just give them to you now. We'll come back and look at them more when we get to chapter four because they factor into even our relationship to God himself through our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me just give you these, these five duties of a kinsman redeemer under Hebrew family law. First of all, the kinsman redeemer was, was to buy back land that a needy relative had sold to make sure that family property never really passed out of the family. This is in Leviticus 25. If somebody in the family found themselves in a difficult place and and had to sell land in order to have the money to live, then the goel, the kinsman redeemer, was supposed to step in and make sure that land didn't pass out of the family forever, to buy it back, to redeem it. Secondly, The goel was responsible to maintain the freedom of individuals by buying back those who had sold themselves into slavery because of poverty. This is in Leviticus as well. 
to maintain the freedom of individuals. So in other words, again, if one of your close relatives found themselves in a desperate financial situation and sold them into some sort of themselves into some sort of indenture service or slavery, then you were responsible as the goel, as the as the kinsman redeemer, the closest relatives to buy them back out of their slavery. Thirdly, the goel was responsible to track down and execute murderers of near relatives. This is where you have that, that picture in the Old Testament of the cities of refuge and, and the avenger of blood. You remember that reference? That's the kinsman redeemer. His responsibility when somebody in his family was murdered, if, if you were a close relative and one of your close relatives was murdered, then you had the responsibility to go and track down that murder and make sure they were brought to justice and even to execute them at that stage of Israel's history. Understand, by the way, this wasn't vigilante justice. This was the prescribed legal method for tracking down a murderer, presenting the evidence to the elders of that city, and then making sure that he was executed. Number four, the goel or the kinsman redeemer was to receive restitution money on behalf of a deceased victim of crime. If, if a victim was killed and you were a close relative, you received the, the restitution money on their behalf, Numbers 5.8. A fifth responsibility of the goel was to ensure that justice was done in lawsuits involving your close relatives. This is in a number of places in the Old Testament. So those were the responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. All that means, it wasn't like a special office. It just meant if you were the close relative. If you were the close relative, you were the kinsman redeemer. And this is what you were responsible to do. Now again, I'll show you more of the implications of this concept when we get to chapter 4. But let me just give you a hint. Jesus is our goel. He is our kinsman redeemer related to us through his humanity and steps in on our behalf. But here in this context, Naomi in verse 20 realized that Boaz, the man Ruth had providentially encountered that day, is one of the relatives who has legal responsibilities toward them. He is a goel because of the proximity of their relationship. Our kinsman redeemer. But Ruth isn't done reporting on her amazing day. Notice verse 21. Then Ruth, the Moabitess, said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Boaz's generosity was not confined to a single day. Each day until the harvest was complete, he wanted her to come back to his fields and to work with his servants. And as we note in the next verse, he meant specifically work alongside of his female servants. Verse 22, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good. It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids so that others do not fall upon you in another field. Naomi agreed with Boaz. These were desperate times. These were the days of the judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If you want to know how dangerous this period was, read the book of Judges. Read the end, the last few sordid chapters of Judges, and you'll know why this was really, really good advice. A time of political instability and a time of moral depravity. 
Naomi's concern was that others not fall upon you in another field. Ruth was a young Moabite foreigner, an alien in the land. She could easily encounter, at the very least, prejudice, verbal abuse, ridicule, insults, and possibly even physical harm. So Naomi urged her to take Boaz up on his invitation. Now notice the chapter ends with a summary of the next couple of months. Verse 23, So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. Just as she had done on this first day, for the next six to seven weeks, Ruth scavenged among the fields of Boaz alongside of his workers. That's about the time that it would have taken for both the barley harvest and the wheat harvest to be collected. We aren't told if she and Boaz had any more contact or interaction, but if her daily yield was even close to what it was on this first day, she would have been able to put away enough grain to easily last through the next year. And if it was well-preserved, there were granaries, you remember, in the ancient world where they could be well-preserved, it could last and be enough for these two women for two to three years. This was an amazing grace of God in their lives. They went from having nothing, from being destitute, from Naomi having to sell the family land, as we'll see in chapter 4, to they have all they need to survive. Verse 23 ends by saying, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth continued to be personally loyal to her mother-in-law, Naomi, through these days. It's really a simple story, isn't it? A simple paragraph, and yet there is so much rich truth here. Let me draw out for us several lessons that just stand out of this paragraph as we've walked our way through it. First of all, and we've already seen this, but let me reemphasize it, God always provides for his own. That's the point here. These women had sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, under his protection, and God moves in their lives to care for them. But did you notice the way God ordinarily accomplishes this provision is through our work. This woman worked hard. 13, 14 hour days for two months. Yes, God provided, but she worked herself to death in that period of time. This is God's way. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. One of God's primary provisions for our needs is hard work. However, there's a balance. Don't think it's your hard work that gets you what you have. Even though we must work, it is God who gives us the power to work and who blesses our work for our good. Deuteronomy 8.18, Moses says to the children of Israel, you shall remember Yahweh your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. It also works the other way, by the way. You remember the, the prophet Haggai who was confronting the people about not building the temple? And he says to them a number of times in his, in his short prophecy, listen, God is eroding what you make. 
you are putting your money into a bag with holes. Sometimes God reminds us of our dependence on him by taking what we make through the needs of life to remind us of our dependence. Work is the primary way that God cares for us and he's the one who blesses us. He's the one who blesses our work. He's the one who gives us the power to advance if we advance at all. Sometimes God takes us through lean times, financially, physical health, etc. And when he does, not only does he meet our needs through our own work, but the point of chapter 2 is he often meets our needs through the compassion and generosity of righteous people like Boaz. So if you're on the receiving end, don't be afraid to receive that as from the Lord. And if you're in a position where you have the resources you need and there's someone in your life who's in need, then make sure that you're an instrument in God's hand in their life. You can do that, of course, through the church. Many of us give to the benevolence fund and the elders manage that. So God provides for his own. That's the first lesson. God always provides for his own. Second lesson, God cares for us I love this. God cares for us, as he did for them, by arranging the smallest details of our lives in his providence. Just as it was with Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, God is always shaping and orchestrating our daily and seemingly insignificant circumstances to make sure that our needs are met. And and I really think that we miss this so often. Remind yourself, as you think about this passage we just studied, that the events of that day in Boaz and Ruth's life seemed extremely pedestrian and ordinary. Right? I mean, if you'd been there that day, nothing extraordinary happened. Through these ordinary events, God was executing an extraordinarily complex plan. But what I want you to think about is this. God doesn't just do that with biblical characters. He does the same in our lives as well. As I was studying this passage this week, and as I was rejoicing in God's providence in their lives, my mind went back through my own life. And I don't often do this, but I want to use this as a point of illustration to you. I want you to bear with me for a moment. Because There were a number in my own life, there were a number of ordinary days with seemingly insignificant events that in the end, God used in extraordinary ways to write the story of my life. And I want you to listen, not just because of me, but I'm going to make a point with it. So stay with me. Here are a few of those in my life as I thought back over my own experience. When I was in high school, a man in my church whom I had never met, walked up to me and offered me a job as an electrician, something I had never done and a skill I didn't have. God used those electrical skills to pay for my college and seminary, which is the 10th child in my family my parents could never have afforded. Seemingly insignificant. You want to work for me this summer as an electrician? I don't know anything about it. Well, I'll teach you. This is God's way. I started college as a pre-law major, just been converted as a senior in high school. I started college as a pre-law major, and as a result, I had two years of accounting. 
When I later changed majors, honestly, those classes seemed like a complete waste. But in fact, they prepared me for the business side of ministry. Many years of my ministry were spent managing large organizations. God used that. Through a seemingly insignificant discussion one day with my college advisor, I decided that I was going to minor in English. Eventually, it was that minor that the Lord used to get me a job at Grace to You. Many years in the future. During my junior year of college, God in his providence used something as small as a tiny little germ. I contracted a virulent virus that put me in the hospital in isolation for two weeks. And it was during those two weeks that I read through the Gospels and God confirmed in my life that he'd called me to the Gospel ministry and I changed my major from pre-law to Bible. Just a little germ. In graduate school... One day, shortly after I had first met Sheila, on one day, we ran into each other on a fairly large campus. We ran into each other seven times. It, it got to be a little awkward, to be honest with you. And six of those were unarranged by us. I confess, the seventh was... <laughs> it was that day that prompted me to ask her out. And today, she's my wife. 30 years we have been married. While I was in graduate school and serving as a teaching assistant, I was in my office one night preparing for the next day, for the next day's lesson, and I happened to turn my radio on, which I never listened to the radio except for news, but I happened to turn on the radio to a small Christian radio station in Gaffney, South Carolina, to listen to Chuck Swindoll. A week or two later, I was listening again, and I happened to leave the radio on after Swindoll's program was over, and for the first time, I heard a pastor from Southern California by the name of John MacArthur. That began my appreciation for his ministry, a ministry that has profoundly shaped my own. After considering several potential places to move to from Greenville, when my education was completed there, we decided we were going to leave. Sheila and I decided out of several options to move to Los Angeles in order to be a part of Grace Community Church. As a result of that decision, I ended up working at Grace to You, and that's how my personal relationship with John began. In 1987, September 1987, on our first Sunday night at Grace Community Church, A friend called me about an announcement he'd seen in the bulletin that I had not seen about a job at Grace to You for someone with a Bible and English background. I had taught both at the college level in God's providence. I called the next day, and a week and a half later, a week and a half after arriving in Los Angeles, I was working for Grace to You. After six months at Grace to You, I was offered two separate job opportunities on one day. Two different guys at Grace to You walked into my office. I happened, in God's providence, to choose the one to work under Phil Johnson and to edit Masterpiece Magazine. In retrospect, I realized that that's what led to my becoming involved in leadership at Grace to You. In 1999, Sheila and I decided to leave California and pursue the pastorate. 
Our decision to leave, we'd even put our house up for sale, was what prompted John to ask me to become the senior associate pastor at the church and his assistant. I had no idea of that potential outcome, and I'm sure that it probably would not have happened apart from our decision to leave. In my role in John's office over those four years, I interacted on his behalf with the leaders of a church in North Texas called Countryside Bible Church. As a result, I became known here and came to know the men here several years later when they were looking for a pastor. In 2001, my father-in-law got cancer, which kept us at Grace Church longer than we'd planned to stay through the spring of 2003 until after his death. It was only in the late spring of 2003 that the leadership of Countryside expressed an interest in my coming as pastor here. If it hadn't been for my father-in-law's cancer and the timing of his death, we would have left California earlier and I would not be here. Now, those are just a few examples as I look back over my life. Seemingly insignificant events on ordinary, unremarkable days I don't share those things to exalt myself in any way. Instead, I share them to exalt the amazing providence of our God. My father arranged all of those day-to-day circumstances just as he did for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and many of them at the time didn't seem to be significant at all to have any long-term ramifications. And yet he used those seemingly insignificant days and events to shape and direct our lives, to use us in the kingdom, and to provide for us. Here's what I want you to think about. If you were to stop and to think through your own life as I have just showed you with mine, shown you with mine, you could trace the same hand of God in the events of your life, in those seemingly insignificant days, insignificant events that were turning points. God was behind the scenes just as he was in this story. He has orchestrated your life. He is orchestrating your life to care for you, believer. If you have sought refuge under his wings, he is doing the same thing in your life. Who knows what seemingly unimportant events tomorrow will in fact be an amazing act of God's complex and overwhelming providence. I also don't share these things with you so that we can all sit back and think, well, that's cool. No, it should all prompt us to faith. You can trust your father. He had a plan in the past and he has a plan in the future in all the details of life. There's a third lesson, very briefly. God is moved to care for us because of his steadfast love. You see, God is the one who initiated a relationship with us. You didn't initiate a relationship with God. He did with you. He sought you out. He regenerated you. He saved you. As we learned this morning, he adopted you. He made a covenant with you, the new covenant. And here's the amazing thing about our God. He describes himself as abounding in hesed, abounding in steadfast love. God never enters into a relationship with anyone that he doesn't stay committed to. 
His relationship with us is always defined by his hesed, his steadfast love. He is bound by his very character, part of his nature, to protect and provide for his own. If I could summarize what we learned in Ruth chapter 2, it would be the last verse of the most famous psalm in scripture, Psalm 23. For those who have sought refuge in God, surely goodness and steadfast love, chesed, will follow. The the Hebrew word there is to pursue, to chase down like a prey. Surely God's goodness and his steadfast love will chase me down all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 12 of his current series titled Ruth. Join us next time for part 13. You know, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.